Hello and welcome to this week's PropCast. I'm Andrew Teacher and I'm joined by Jessica Piltz, who's Global Head of ESG for Fiera Real Estate. Jess, great to see you. Thanks, Thank Andy. you for coming in. So you joined Fiera Real Estate at the start of 2020, just in time for COVID. And, and at that point, the company had recently rebranded, hadn't it, from Palmer Capital. And many people listening to this and in the market here will obviously know Ray Palmer. So give us a bit of a background on Fiera Real Estate and how that relates to the global business. And then obviously we'd be keen to really dive into your career and some of what you've been doing over the last three years on the ESG front. Thanks, Andy, and thanks for having me here this morning to join you. This is great. Yes, that's absolutely correct. So Ray Palmer sold Palmer Capital to Fiera Capital, which is a global investment manager with about 115 billion US dollars under management as at I think it was September 2022. And Fiera Real Estate forms a part of our private markets business, which accounts for about 13 to 14 billion assets under management. And Fiera Real Estate makes up about 6 billion of those assets under management. And in terms of your focus at the minute, what are the main things that are on your table? Sure. So my role covers ESG across the whole of our Canadian UK real estate businesses, which covers both sort of the corporate side as well as development and ongoing operation of the asset management side of the business. But I also am very involved in the private markets business. So looking across all other asset classes like infrastructure, agriculture, private credit and private equity. Yeah, yeah. And I guess it's a bit of a merging of worlds because when you and I met, we met what, 10, 11 years ago. Yeah just up the road from where we are now and glorious Farringdon in the Save the Children building <laughs> yes. uh, where IPD which latterly became MSCI's real estate division was based and some absolutely fantastic times had by all <laughs> and then you spent some time in banking and consultancy for RBS and GVA which was then well, latterly Avison Young everything's something else now isn't it that, it, was, well, it was Bill Finger and then was Avison Young oh, so yeah, yeah yeah so how have you digested into this role the other things that you were doing back yeah. in the day at MSCI and at Royal Bank of Scotland? Yeah, great question. I suppose I'm unique in the sense that I've had exposure to ESG within real estate from a number of different perspectives. So from asset management to sort of benchmarking and indices and then consulting and then lending. In terms of my role now, in terms of us launching a real estate debt fund, which we're doing, actually the experience that I had at Royal Bank of Scotland has been enormously helpful because, you know, some things that we were looking at, and I, I remember actually even chatting to you, I think, when I was at Royal Bank of Scotland, you know, we were thinking about how to integrate ESG into lending. And now that's actually sort of at the forefront of what's happening in the market now. But then also just in terms of consultancy and benchmarking, you know, people are still trying to find that green premium. And I think having had that experience and being involved with Grez back in the day and having seen how that's evolved over time has really helped provide a good foundation, I guess, for what I'm doing now. And I've kind of gone full circle back from starting in asset management to coming back to asset management. Yeah. Let's come back to the benchmarking question in a minute, because I think that's always a bit of a deep topic that creates a lot of debate. In terms of Fiera Real Estate, you mentioned the debt strategy, which is being launched in Q1. What are the other funds that you have? There's the Fiera Real Estate long income fund, isn't there? Tell us about that. What is that targeting? Who are the sorts of investors that yeah. are in that? Sure. So I'll focus predominantly on the UK business. So we have a core side and a value add side and the core business, as you've said, we have a long income fund, the yeah. real estate yeah. long income fund. We are now part of the MSCI long income index. And essentially, I think our investor group there is made up of a combination of pension fund, LGPS. It's made up of institutional investors, some private wealth, also some overseas investors. And I think predominantly 
given the nature of the product in terms of having a long progressive strong strategy as well as a huge focus on ESG LGPS's clients are actually sort of our main priority and focus at the moment given they sort of search for that income protection as well as an ESG focus yeah so that's a local government pension local scheme. government pension schemes correct and then we also have segregated mandates where we manage accounts on behalf of some overseas investors yeah. on the core side. And then on the value add side, we have a number of funds. We have a logistics fund that we launched last year. So an opportunity fund, as well as we're launching a residential land partnership, which looks at it's sort of a land entitlement strategy where we have we buy land and we get planning permission and then sell it to house builders. So in terms of the long income stuff, how does that work with an ESG strategy? Because I'm guessing for many of those assets, you're going to have limited control, aren't you? Absolutely. So, I mean, that's, I suppose, been the million dollar question for a long time in ESG is how do you deal with assets, specifically those that are sort of FRI leases, which are fully repairing and insuring leases, where the landlord typically has no control and the tenant has control. And I suppose in the past, we've always talked about that split incentive then, that problem between, you know, who pays. There has been that sort of gap between landlord and tenant in terms of relationship. And I would actually say that, in the last few years, I've seen a significant change. And in fact, I would say that our relationships with our tenants have strengthened substantially because of ESG. In the past, we haven't necessarily seen eye to eye or had a common goal, whereas now we're all working towards a net zero carbon target of some kind. And a lot of our tenants in our portfolio have already set net zero carbon targets. So for us to come now and say, you know, we need to set a net zero carbon target, we need your help, we need access to the building. If we funded the PV panels, for example, how do you feel about funding some other things, that type of conversation. So we felt it's been a catalyst, not just to strengthen the relationship, but even from a sort of financial performance point of view, we've been able to discuss lease regears and things like that, taking into account the ESG initiatives that we'd like to do and being able to negotiate with our tenants. So in the past, I would say it's been hugely challenging, but I would say in the last few years, I found a huge shift in terms of how that dynamic has changed. And do you think the energy crisis has sped that along? Definitely. I would say that a lot of our tenants have been worrying about that, particularly we have a lot of industrial manufacturing tenants with huge carbon footprints, they form sort of the large majority of our scope three emissions. Um, so they are definitely addressing that and finding ways that they can sort of move to electrification and solar or renewable sources of energy. Yeah. So, I mean, let's talk about the different scopes, because this is something that I think often confuses people. So you published pretty recently a net zero carbon pathway, which aims to achieve net zero by 2035. And within that, you've covered the scope one, scope two, and scope three emissions, including embodied carbon, and you've set targets for each of those. Just explain to people that might not be quite so technical what the difference is between scope one, scope sure. two, and scope three, and how you go about setting targets for each. Sure, absolutely. So when we talk about scopes, it can get a bit confusing, but the best way to explain it is that scope one is, I would say, the easiest way to explain is that if you had a building, for example, or actually as a company, it's the emissions that you procure on site. So gas is a really good example of yeah, that. So think yeah. about the building that you occupy as a, sort of a corporation. The gas that's used to heat your building, that would qualify as scope one because it's actually generated on site. The emissions 
are being released from that asset. Yeah. Scope to a good example of that would be your electricity at that same building. So the electricity might not be generated on site, it's generated something else and sort of travels to you, you're procuring it on site, that would be scope two. And then scope three, a really good example as a real estate fund manager would be your tenants because you're not responsible for their emissions, but financially you have control over them, you own the property and therefore you're indirectly responsible for their emissions. So that would be all tenants, electricity and gas, et cetera. Yeah. So how do you go about setting meaningful targets on those things and when as we've discussed sometimes you as a landlord in speaking in the general sense might not have any control or even yeah. oversight and certainly most of the time you have no legal cause to be able to go in and lift up the bonnet yeah absolutely um great question so i suppose at fear real estate we went about things a little bit differently to how some people might have done it in the market before us um we only set our net zero carbon target at the end of last year because for the last two years we've actually been building that pathway to make sure that we could actually set a target in the first place and wanted to make sure that it was meaningful and robust and that we had sort of thought through the costs and things so what we've done is there's sort of two parts to how we've set that target the one is that we wanted to collect a really strong baseline of data from which we could then set a meaningful target. So the first part of that was around data collection. So we set up a program with our tenants about a year and a half ago, whereby we collect their data with their consent, of course, um, through a third party who scrapes their data from their utility portals. And that data comes directly through to us. And we have 60% of tenants by floor area that have agreed to that. Yeah, yeah. And then on the development side, we've touched on logistics a little bit earlier. So you've got the Fiera Real Estate Logistics Development Fund UK, which has already raised a considerable amount of equity. Yeah. How are you thinking about the environmental, social and governance targets within logistics? Because again, it could be any kind of use, yeah. couldn't it? Often yeah. within big industrial sites that, again, particularly as we move towards electric vehicles, are going you know, to be huge, huge consumers of electricity. Yeah, so actually logistics is actually a really good sector from an ESG credentials point of view for a couple of reasons. One, the obvious one, because of roof space. Two, because they generally don't have a lot of areas to heat. So it's actually quite easy to transition logistics buildings or to build them to be sort of net zero carbon. And lastly, when you think about a distribution warehouse, for example, like an Amazon, where they have a lot of hopefully electric vehicles, you can actually start to do really interesting things like load balancing, where you're actually using the electricity from the cars to, mm. you know, it's quite a technical concept, but it's a really good area to be able to do that. It's essentially sucking energy out of cars, sinking it in a battery for a day and powering a building. Yeah, basically you can sort of, you know, when you're not using the cars, you can use that electricity to kind of power the building and vice versa when you, you know, so there's really interesting things that you can do going forward. I also think that you know having a really strong sort of sustainable design brief that dictates the standards that you're going to build to from the start when you're even launching a fund makes a really big difference so for example with the embodied carbon side in that logistics fund we are targeting net zero construction on all buildings and so we are doing a life cycle carbon assessment for every single asset to measure that and getting it certified by uk or doing it to the uk gbc standard mm. and are investors willing to pay the extra now Oh, that's a really good, big question, Andy. I think some are and some aren't. I think, you know, I've spent the last few weeks having some really interesting conversations with potential investors and with some consultants. And I think for me, and I've actually just written an article about it now, one of the glaringly big things to come out of that for me was that ESG is still vitally important, 
but it's not in lieu of financial performance. That is still the number one thing that investors in the capsule are expecting yeah. to achieve, but it's not a compromise. They can be done together. I think that, you know, if I think about our net zero carbon pathway for Freluf, we presented that to our investment committee, which was approved. I think that it depends on the costs and it depends on how you position that. But I think they are willing to sort of accept some sort of basis points reduction, but not huge. I think the financial performance is still number one. Yeah, yeah. But I guess the big stick coming down the road with that is the regulatory shape stick, right? And obviously there's all sorts of rules and regulations that are currently set by the EU. How do you see the UK market working out that regulatory risk and working through some of the changes that we're seeing as a lot of the EU legislation gets dumped? Yeah, well, I think to be honest, I mean, even though the UK is going to be releasing a sort of their version of SFDR through the FCA's SDR later this year, it's in consultation at the moment. I think even though that's still sort of coming out, I think a lot of the UK market have already been following, you know, or being having fallen into scope of SFDR. So in some ways, we already are under that sort of Just stick. Just explain as what you SFDR say. is. So it's the Sustainable Finance Disclosure Regulations, and it was brought up by the EU essentially as a sort of like anti-greenwashing regulation. Mm. And it sort of funds the target of sort of disclosing how they integrate ESG to avoid sort of people lying, to be completely honest about yeah, what so they're doing. Yeah, so it's the Financial Conduct Authority saying... And then the UK's version of that, now that we're not part of the EU, will be the sustainable disclosures regulations from the FCA, which they are trying to mirror and trying to take the sort of best out of SFDR, but it won't be exactly the same. Yeah, I mean, this came to a head, didn't it, a couple of years ago when people saw that ESG funds were investing into fast fashion, into all sorts of things that one might reasonably yeah. not deem as being particularly sustainable. And that, again, it's one of the big challenges. And you know, from our time at IPD, that was always something that the team were trying to get off the ground, wasn't it? Trying to get sustainable benchmarking and indices off the ground. And we're still not quite there, are we? No. Although I um, I don't know. I think that a part of me, I have mixed feelings about this because I think that in some ways we need to just leave it alone and just stop looking for some kind of green alpha because does it really matter? We all know that there's an urgent call to kind of address what's happening yeah. and we all have a responsibility to do that. But on the other hand, also conscious that many people haven't actually crossed over to the green side and realised the urgent call to action and are still needing to see that sort of verification that ESG does actually provide value and also I suppose mitigate risk and so for me I think the biggest thing is by not doing it now it's more the risk rather than the value but I think we will still see some value in the short term particularly when it comes to sort of you know those assets that might have a net zero carbon plan versus those that don't and you know if you have a building with a tenant that does not want to engage on net zero carbon there's nothing you can do to kind of transition it then you know how much is it worth in the market don't know yeah and where does real estate sit within the other asset classes that Fiera is involved with? Real estate, I would say, as a whole is really far ahead, particularly when it comes to data. I think we've been working on this for maybe a lot longer. I'd say infrastructure is also quite far ahead, just by nature of, I suppose, the asset class. But I'd say from a sort of data point of view and actually knowing where we sit from a carbon footprint point of view, I'd say we're a lot further ahead. That's not to say that we've solved it by any means, but we're a lot further ahead. And do you think that... Uh, I mean, are investors starting to get a bit more canny? And is there a difference you find between different sets of investors? Are the pension funds, for example, are they more hot on some of this stuff than private investors? Yeah, 100%. I would say 
it definitely depends on your type of investor, also type of market, what market they're coming from. If you look at an investor from the Middle East, for example, a private wealth investor, they definitely might not give ESG as much attention. However, a local government pension scheme are really hot on ESG. And, you know, just to name some of the themes that I'm seeing emerging from this year in terms of what they are looking for, one of the biggest ones to come out of my conversations with them recently has been around reporting. Um, they are going to be looking for a lot more verifiable data, a lot more regular, consistent reporting, and particularly across asset classes. So, you know, if they're investing with a manager across more than just real estate, so maybe real estate and infrastructure, agriculture, real assets, for example, mm. they're going to want to see that reporting across those asset classes consistently. They want comparability. They want to be able to get all in one place, you know. They have a requirement to report on for TCFD, so Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosure, and they can't do that unless we're providing them that data. So that's going to be huge. How do we go about working out properly the embedded carbon load? Because I guess it's all very well to say we need to be consistent and we need to be able to compare X and Y and apples and lemons, but that's the ultimate point, isn't it? In many cases, you are comparing apples with lemons with pears with oranges with tomatoes yeah. and grapefruits because... To be able to say this piece of fibre optic infrastructure that I've invested in has a performance of X versus some secondary office building in Watford. Yeah. Sorry, that probably wasn't very clear. I don't think they necessarily want to compare like infrastructure to real estate. I think they're just looking for the same level of reporting across the asset oh, classes. Oh, yeah, no, so, no, yeah. no, I, no I, yeah, I registered yeah. that. No, thanks for um, clarifying. I, I'm not, but I'm, I'm talking even within but property. So, so within property, it's a really good question. And I think things like another point to come out of all these conversations I've been having with investors that's really hard for them is that there are just so many guidelines, reporting frameworks, benchmarks, things. And it's that. I mean, this is an, an age old problem in real estate, particularly when it comes to sustainability, that we just have too many things that we can focus on. So how do you find that one thing that kind of is the be all and end all? I don't know. I think it's about as a manager, understanding how your investor wants to see information or how they want you to do something and trying to respond to that as best as you can without obviously being too bespoke for each yeah and given your background in banking in ipd and msci on the benchmarking side what advice would you give to former colleagues in those places now having spent some time in both advisory and investment management as well on the ground actually yeah getting your hands dirty doing the stuff so to speak what are the things that from your previous time are being missed so I think if I look back now and when I was trying to sort of introduce benchmarks and sort of EcoPass, if anyone remembers that product, <laughs> I would say there's little understanding of the actual issues that we have as a fund manager. And just in a way, they need to spend more time with asset managers and with fund managers, with ESG professionals to really get to the bottom of those sort of day-to-day -day issues that we experience, whether it's through, you know, tenant engagement, whether it's, you know, not having the data readily available for products that they're releasing and then wondering why it might not work. I think that they are actually getting there. And I've seen real progress actually in the last few months and years. But I would just say it's just more that spend more time and listen to what the problems are, even if it means going into the office for like a week or something, I don't know. Mm. And from your perspective, what do you see as being the direction of travel from a political sense? What should policymakers be thinking about? Obviously, we're going to be in an election cycle next year, and people are going to be spending the rest of this year putting the policy together on different things. But it does seem a little bit unclear at the minute what people want when it comes to 
renewables when it comes to yeah. real estate and i suppose the dumping of lots of eu legislation is also potentially confusing yeah. things further definitely and i mean that's a really big question i'm not sure i'm equipped to answer it very well but what i will say is that i think there has been a lot of concern particularly from esg professionals in that the government hasn't instilled confidence that they have a clear plan to get to sort of their net zero carbon target by 2050 and i don't think there are enough levers that exist to go from sort of that target to actually having meaningful action. So mm. how do we actually get there? And so if you think about real estate and the problem I mentioned earlier, where, for example, landlords can't get data from tenants, why is there not something mandating tenants to share that data with their landlords so that we actually know what we're working with? So I don't know the direction of travel. I really hope that they're not going to be short-sighted, given that we are looking at a potential recession and you know geopolitical instability, energy crisis. It can be very easy to be blinded by those things and try find an easier solution, like in you know more coal plants or like lifted the ban on fracking. So I think my only hope is that they're going to not be short-sighted and remember that actually ESG and renewable energy and all these other areas actually will improve the economy and create more jobs and things like that so mm. that's my only hope but i think it's anyone's guess as to where it's actually going to end up should they being i guess government and business should we set aside the s and the g and just accept that we're not going to be able to do all this stuff properly and to the level that's needed and actually the focus should simply be let's just focus on the climate mm, yes and no so definitely you know in a time and resource constrained world climate change and i suppose decarbonization and the e part of that is definitely an easier one to address because it's the most urgent, you know, there's actual consequences that are attached to not doing it. Yeah, but yeah. then also the S is very much linked to that because there's a lot of people, and this came out of sort of, you know, COP26 and 27, where we talked about the just transition, where the thought that actually not everyone is in a position to be able to think about decarbonization and how has climate change actually impacted those most vulnerable and how do we deal with that? So there is a social element. And then also whenever we talk about ESG and actually my peer, Oliver Light, I always quote him on this because he often says the G should become before the E and the S because actually that's the basis. If you don't have the G in place, you can't actually actually implement any of the ENS. If you don't have buy-in and policy and process, it's very hard to mm. actually get the ENS right. And I tend to agree. So it's a really hard one. I kind of agree that, as I said, in a time and resource constrained world, we should probably just be focusing on decarbonization, but it's not that straightforward. There are other metrics that mm. we need to think about. And, and that transition is also going to be the big, big challenge of this cycle, if you accept that we're in a new property cycle with rates resetting and pricing also resetting. And that transition physically from older buildings that need to be refurbished and repositioned that's going to be a big big shift for many many people it's going to require a lot of capital it's going to create a lot of risk but also a lot of opportunity how do you think the industry set up for what we're talking about as being the cycle of capex i'm not sure very well in some ways so you know thinking about those old buildings that you're talking about and sort of you know not great locations, those are going to be mm. the hardest ones to actually transition and actually move away. And that was one of Ray Palmer's great skills, wasn't it? It was finding yeah. assets and repositioning them, wasn't it? Well, absolutely. We and need I, to get Ray on this podcast. <laughs> you do need to get Ray on this podcast. and so He'd love that. But absolutely, that is what we do. And a lot of the buildings that we actually have in our long income fund are not your shiny exemplar, Briam outstanding office buildings in the city. They are industrial manufacturing sites in 
Aberdeen or but they might have lower embedded carbon because again a big shiny yeah. high-rise office building has a lot of plant machinery yeah. lots of lifts in it it's made of a lot yeah. of steel glass and concrete and Again, the most sustainable building is some Roman building that's yeah. made of stone, right? Exactly. And I suppose one of our philosophies, particularly in the long income fund, is we don't believe in sort of throwing our rubbish in our neighbor's garden, for example. It's about actually being part of the solution. And so every single one of our assets in the portfolio has an asset plan. And we've done net zero carbon audits to understand what needs to happen at each of those sites. And we do that prior to acquisition too. So part of our due diligence process is exactly that, understanding what CapEx is required to transition the building? What is the risk to us of buying this asset? And I think we're going to be seeing that more in the market, which is why I say I don't think we're very well equipped at the moment. But as more buyers start asking for this data, you know, does this building have a net zero carbon pathway? How much does it cost? Have you actually worked out, you know, the cost of electrification or removing the fossil fuels? So I think we are moving towards that, but it's still going to take a bit of time i think yeah and what are the current red flags what are the things that make you say no at the minute so i mean the most obvious is from a social perspective you know depending on what activities the tenants are exposed to i mean we recently said no to a tenant well i said no to a tenant because um i won't say what they were doing but it wasn't great so that is obviously you know exclusions list but from an environmental perspective We've got our own proprietary ESG resilience scorecard, which identifies a number of different elements at the building from energy to water to waste to certifications, regulation, mm. you know. So this is a platform that Fiera Real Estate has built. Exactly. So it's a platform that we've built and it sort of scores each of these elements. And we actually typically don't present anything to our investment committee that has a score of less than 15 out of 30. Even between sort of we have sort of thresholds, we identify how we can improve that score. So I would say that for us... Net zero carbon by 2035 is a hugely ambitious target. So for us, if we're looking at a building, we need to know that the tenant is engaged. We need to know that they have potentially a net zero carbon target or that they're willing to at least have a conversation. We need to have access to data, you know, from the last 12 months. And we do a site visit to understand, you know, how much fossil fuel is used on site, because typically that's one of your biggest costs, particularly in industrial buildings, is that reliance on fossil fuel and whether or not you can actually move to electrification instead of fossil fuels. Mm. And these things aren't within anyone's gift, are they? So do you mean from a skills perspective? Well, no, I mean, from a, just from a broader control perspective, you're not going to be able to control what the energy networks are going to be able to provide. No, that, but also I suppose, I mean, looking at a typical building, we'd want to know how much fossil fuel is used so that we can see if like an air source heat pump can replace that and what would the cost of that be? Mm. Or, you know, for example, one of our assets that is we're transitioning to net zero carbon, the local authority is actually putting an energy to waste plant up. And part of the planning permission was that they had to share the excess energy with local tenants nearby. And mm. one of our tenants was lucky enough to kind of, you know, get access to this free energy. So it's about finding these nuances and things like that just see how they work yeah and i guess you'd argue that these things just need to be a bit more streamlined definitely because it does seem a little bit hodgepodge in terms of the provision of these sorts of facilities definitely and i guess that's where it comes back to the g part because obviously we can't be in control of you know what government is doing or what's happening in the area but from our perspective we can control what questions we're asking the data that we're looking for prior to an acquisition and i think that's a huge part of our strategy now is knowing that asset before we buy it understanding that tenant what their plans are 
Mm. And did lenders need to do more? I mean, you're not at RBS anymore, so you can speak on their behalf quite happily. But <laughs> what should lenders be doing? Yeah, so, I mean, I always believed, even at my time at RBS, and actually in their defence, I suppose at the time they were one of the first to really think about this. And I know Lloyds, for example, are doing loads in this area. But I always thought that they had a lot more power than they thought because they're the ones that essentially, you know, finance a lot of developments. They finance a lot of the buying of property. So surely, you know, they could set some targets and covenants around what needed to happen. So I think always more could happen. I suppose what we're seeing on the sort of private side now, so the the real estate debt side at investment managers, I think there's been a huge move toward a much stronger focus on this. So you're seeing like, you know, responsible lending frameworks coming out. Are they just marketing puff these things or can people really have confidence in them? Well, I hope not because what we're looking to launch and it's actually currently being reviewed at the moment is that a responsible lending framework Mm. that addresses at both the sort of borrower level you know looking at the borrower but then also looking at the sort of real estate side of things the the project the development the whatever it is that we're lending on but does it become again a self-perpetuating cycle away from solving the problem if banks are only lending to the shiniest newest stuff yeah and not the tertiary buildings that probably need a bit of love it accentuates this two-tier market that we've already got. True, but I suppose that it depends on what targets you're setting. So for us, it's more around like setting covenants around sharing data. So for the borrower to actually share data, it's about sort of energy efficiency improvements, not necessarily you have to have a BREM outstanding. That's not what we're aiming for. So it's more around what are you doing to improve the asset in terms of even if it's, you know, replacing LED lighting or moving from an EPCD to an EPCB or whatever it might be. So it's not aimed at sort of encouraging that two-tiered market i would say it's more supporting the need to sort of move to a low carbon economy Mm. and what do we need to do on the skills side i mean let's um i I don't want to sort of dwell too much on your personal situation but you know you've had an astonishing and stellar rise you've managed to find time to have kids along the way and, (laughs) and that's not an easy thing as i found out over the last nine months but what could the industry be doing to better elevate its own skill base and to retain more people like yourself in the sector yeah it's a really good question and and, well thank you and I'm not sure I fully know the answer to that question yet other than to say there is a huge skill shortage in the market not even just for sort of ESG professionals like me that have had that strategic and tactical I suppose experience from a number of different sectors but also just from a you know we're moving into a much more ESG has become a lot more technical in terms of we need more engineers to actually do net zero carbon Mm. audits and to actually think about these things from that sort of perspective. And there's a huge shortage of that. And I think anyone who works in this industry has seen that firsthand as people are trying to grow their teams. There's been so much movement across consultancies to in-house, vice versa. So there's been a huge shift. I think there are more people coming up through. I think a lot of the younger generation are a lot more acutely aware of the situation that we're in sort of from a climate crisis point of view. So a lot more people are sort of choosing to focus on this as a career. And I think it's just a matter of time before we start just seeing that sort of new cohort and that new generation come through. I mean, I was a working mom that took a sort of three-year career break because I swore I'd never come back to ESG and real estate. I was so tired of pushing water up a hill, but I was assured it that... Did it did feel like that 10 years ago, didn't it? Did, it did. Yeah. It very much felt like that. But I was assured that things had changed and, you know, people were right. And in fact, it's actually been quite overwhelming at how quickly things have evolved. Well, I mean, there's a lot of people that we grew up in this industry with that are now in roles like yourself, yeah. really being able to affect change, which is great to see. No, it's amazing. And I think I feel particularly lucky that I have a group and a, a peer network that is so supportive of one another and we have been for so long you know it doesn't feel like you know of course there's 
you know, that element that we're competing firms a lot of the time. But actually, when it comes to ESG, everyone is pretty supportive. And, you know, we're all working towards the same goal. And I think, you know, having that network of people that are in a similar situation and that are carrying the burden of what feels like a lot. You know, we've gone from being ESG people, you know, in our own little right to suddenly being compliance managers, you know, in terms of understanding regulations, you know, none of us are lawyers. And actually, the bandwidth that we have to have at the moment in terms of how quickly things are evolving is is quite overwhelming. So Jess, final question, what do you see the big themes of the year being? So, you know, we're already a month into the year or so, but still much of it left what are the big themes not just for this year but for this cycle that you see being at the top of investors minds as we move forward yeah sure so i mean as always with esg it's constantly evolving and there's always something new to think about i would say i've mentioned already reporting and sort of that verifiable data, I think there's going to be a stronger push for more consistent reporting on a quarterly basis to investors. The social element, I mentioned the just transition, I think for a lot of particularly pension fund investors, we need to start thinking a bit more about the social metrics, which have been ignored for some time. Obviously, we've been thinking about them for a while, but having a bit more meaningful sort of look at those and how you can actually integrate them from a real estate investment manager perspective adaptation so we have been very focused on mitigation in the past so you know sort of reducing carbon emissions avoiding them i think there's a strong movement now and this is probably a result of cop 27 at the end of last year a strong push towards thinking about how we actually cope with the changes and the damages that we've already caused and strategies around how we deal with them i suppose so adapting to climate change Mm. and then the last one which i suppose came out of cop 15 in montreal at the end of last year was biodiversity so you know we've i've talked about the task force on climate related financial disclosure we're now moving to the task force on nature related financial disclosure so i think a big push that identifies that actually climate change and biodiversity are twin crises and actually you can't do one without the other there's going to be a huge call to sort of restore nature and the natural environment Mm. So I'd say that those are pretty big themes that we're going to be thinking about this year. Yeah, there's a mountain to climb there. And I mean, anyone listening to this that's got some views on the biodiversity side of things, we'd love to hear from you because it's definitely something we're going to be covering in some depth over the next couple of months. But that's fantastic. Thank you. Great to see you, Jess. Great to be back in the Farringdon hood. Um, Fantastic (laughs) to hear everything's going really well and great to hear a little bit more about Fiera Real Estate. This is Jessica Piltz. Fiera Real Estate's Global Head of ESG. Great to see you. Thank you. I've been Andrew Teacher. This has been PropCast. You can listen, you can subscribe, you can get involved and you can delve back over the last five years of episodes on Apple Music, on Spotify, SoundCloud, anywhere you get your podcasts from. It's always great to hear from different listeners and we'll see you again very, very soon. Take care. Bye-bye.